0: Just about time for soundings. I'm Al Stoller, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Did you catch the cat video? Let's see, the cat video from space. And it was entirely appropriate that it was a video of a cat playing with a laser. This was a test of a new communication system that NASA's been working on for some time now. Theoretically, they've been looking at it and just sort of salivating over the prospects. Roy G. Biv, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet, is the spectrum of visible light. And what's happening there as we go from red to violet is that we're vibrating faster and faster and faster. Well, we can go down below that. Below infrared, excuse me, below red is infrared. That's exactly what infrared means is below red. And infrared is near infrared, which is very, very similar to light. In fact, there's some critters that can see near infrared. We can't see it, but some critters can. And then down below that, down, uh, there's thermal infrared, which we can certainly detect because we can feel that coming off a campfire. And then below infrared, there is radio. And the high part of the radio, the very high frequency, it's just like blue is high frequency for visible light, the high frequency of radio is microwave. We're all familiar with microwaves. Then you get down below that. And it's like radio waves we are transmitting with here at KVMR. Our signal vibrates and vibrates at 89.5 megahertz. Mega means millions, so that's 89 and a half million times a second. A hertz is one vibration per second. H-E-R-T-Z. And you can actually, if you look at your radio, chances are there's an H Z on the dial there, standing for hertz. Well, so far all spacecraft have been communicating by radio, which makes sense. We've got a lot of experience with radio. We know what we're doing. But the temptation is if you can communicate with a higher frequency, get out of radio and bump up to the infrared, especially the near-infrared, which is practically visible... It's vibrating that much faster. It's like going up the dial, you know, from 89.5 to 100 to uh, 107, and about as high as you can get, I believe. And, you know, you just got all these vibrations. And what the trick is that you could put information theoretically on each and every one of those little vibrations, which means that the more vibrations you get per second, the more information you could cram into one second of communication. So that's the plan, is to be able to communicate rather than by radio, to communicate by laser. And that's what uh, this experiment did with the cat video. We launched spacecraft Psyche, going to the asteroid Psyche, should reach there sometime 2029, just launched last October. It's going to uh, go by Mars, and Mars is going to speed it up a little bit. It's going to pretend or it's going to go close enough to Mars that Mars will pull on it. But Mars will not be able to pull into orbit, just pull it. And uh, sort of like a slingshot, exactly like a slingshot, sends it on faster towards asteroid psyche. Asteroid psyche is interesting because it's a metal asteroid. It's an iron asteroid. And if it falls, if the... um, The models we make are correct, and we figure, okay, this is the way the planets form, this is the way the asteroids form, and these asteroids are essentially planetesimals, bits and pieces of stuff that was on its way to becoming a planet, but never quite did. Probably Jupiter got in the way by pulling it this way and that. And so we now have these chunks of rock and metal going around and around and around the sun in their own orbit. Between Mars and Jupiter. Thing is, that they're different. And some of them are made of different combinations of rocky material, and a very, very few of them are iron. And not sure exactly how they came to be, though the model says that, well, you had this small planet, maybe a large asteroid, forming, large enough to have an iron core, large enough to melt, and its iron fell sank to the bottom the bottom being the center and had this rocky mantle all over it just like Earth has a rocky mantle over our iron core well the thing is that the rocky mantle got blasted one chunk of rock after another got blasted off simply by colliding with other asteroids leaving us with this iron asteroid which according to this model is the core of this Once much larger asteroid. That's one of the things Psyche is going to be looking at, is has this thing melted? Because if it never melted, the model kind of falls apart. It had to melt in order for all this iron to fall, to sink towards the center. So we'll be able to tell if it melted. If it did melt at one point, then the model's probably good. If not, back to the drawing board and bring up another model for how this thing formed. So uh, the, the uh, test that uh, you're able to see that cat video, and of course you can find it on the web if you haven't seen it, it's essentially uh, a cat chasing after a laser, laser dot. And very, very appropriate because it's by a laser that uh, this video, this cat video, was sent from the spacecraft psyche back down to Earth. Very successful experiment. A little bit more space news. NASA and Roscosmos, the Russian space agency, signed an agreement that they will continue carrying each other's astronauts to and from the International Space Station, at least for about the next two years or so, and then they'll likely sign another agreement, but we shall see. It's kind of interesting, because there have been times in the past when Russia and the U.S. were not on good terms, and we did, though, Carry each of those astronauts back and forth. Just, uh, I mean, you got to cooperate, and some things are, well, some things are more important than other things. If uh, you've got that feeling that we're sort of in a state of free fall, you're not imagining it. We are indeed in a state of free fall. We are falling around. The sun. And whereas this past July, six months ago, we were going around the sun at something like something over 65,000 miles an hour, today, tonight, we're going around the sun at 67,000 miles an hour. If you throw a ball into the air, it leaves your hand pretty fast. But then, well, it Slows down as it's going upwards and eventually comes to a stop for one infinitesimally small fraction of a second. It's neither going up nor down and then it starts to fall and it starts falling slowly, but then it goes faster and faster until you catch it and it hits your hand going as fast as it possibly can, about the same speed as when it left your hand when you threw it upwards. The earth does not orbit the sun in a perfect circle, we orbit in a stretched out circle and ellipse and whereas in july we were as far from the sun as we possibly could get today just about oh, not even 2 hours ago we were as close to the sun as we could possibly get and since we're falling around the sun and falling around the sun that's just like throwing that ball up but in addition to throwing it up, you're playing catch with a friend, so you also give it some sideways motion. And the earth, in addition to falling down toward the sun, we're also falling sideways, and the upshot is we fall around the sun. And we were, this is perihelion today, it was less than two hours ago, we were at our absolute closest to the sun, about 92 and a half, a bit under 92 and a half million miles. Last July we were ninety four and a half million miles from the sun, as far as we can get, moving as slowly as we could. 92 and a half now, 94 and a half then, averages 93, and 93 million miles, the average distance of the Earth to the sun. That's what we all memorize. Well, let's see. Oh, well, we are now close to the sun. One might think it would be Kind of warm out. But, hey, there's actually snow in the prediction for this weekend. Here's hoping. Yes, indeed, we are warmer than we would be if we were closer to the sun. But the big thing is our tilt. Remember the globe on teacher's desk always set at that jaunty angle, and that's because Earth does not orbit the sun straight up and down. We tilt twenty three and a half degrees, and the calendar tells us what whether we're tilting towards the sun or tilting away. We are now this is the calendar saying this is winter, we are tilting away from the sun. Six months from now, six months ago, we are tilting towards the sun and it was summer. That does change when folks first see the uh, north star Polaris they're often surprised that there's nothing special about it. It's not an especially bright star. What is special about it is that Polaris sits out in space directly above the North Pole. So that's what we tilt towards. It's above the North Pole. That's what makes it the North Star. But some years ago, maybe 12,000, 13,000 years ago, Earth wobbles. And 12,000, 13,000 years ago, we wobbled around to point towards a different north star. And that one is special. It's bright. You can actually see it, not tonight because it's all cloudy, but you can still see it towards the west. In the middle of summer, it is very, very high in the sky. And it's really fun to point to that and Polaris. And this time of year, Polaris, because of our tilts, well, Polaris is always in the same place. But the Big Dipper helps you find Polaris is very low if you don't have an excellent view of the horizon you probably can't see Polari- uh, see the big dipper it's in the trees so the thing is that you can if you can find polaris and then you find vega you see what a big wobble we make and there are times like 12 13,000 years ago when we were indeed leaning towards the sun in summer away from the sun in winter, and that made our summers a bit hotter and our winters a bit colder than they were otherwise. But, well, that's that's not what throws us into an ice age. Cold winters, what throws us into an ice age is a situation we have kind of right now where we have relatively warm summers, excuse me, me, relatively cool summers, and uh, they don't get warm enough to melt off all the snow and ice and the snow and ice builds up, builds up, builds up in the mountains and also way north, way south. And we get these large, large glaciers. It throws us into an ice age. We'll talk about that again real soon. Fun stuff. Talking about the calendar, though, you know, like uh, we just got out of December. December, the Desi means 10. And yes, indeed, December used to be the 10th month. October, hey, an octopus has eight legs, an octagon has eight sides. October used to be the eighth month. But because of the way the moon, the m- which from which we get the word month, the moon does not evenly go around an even number of times around the sun in one year. Oh, a couple of thousand years ago, the Roman calendar got seriously screwed up. And their calendar that started out having 10 months, October being the 8th and December being the 10th month, they had to add another couple of months just to bring the calendar back straight. So, uh, well, December, Desi, 10, that's the 12th month. Last December saw the winter solstice, the shortest day of the year, but that did not necessarily mean that that was when the sun was rising the latest and setting the earliest. The earliest sunset took place a couple of weeks before that, early December. The latest sunrise is not until this Saturday. And we're pretty darn close to that. It's kind of like when you're riding a roller coaster and you're heading towards the top and it gets gentler and gentler and gentler. see so just... Move up a little bit higher and a little bit higher and a little bit higher until you get to the top, and then you go over the top gently, and then suddenly you start falling. Same thing with the time of sunrise, sunset. So the sun is going to is going to uh, say rise a little bit later, day after day after day, coming up until this Saturday. This Saturday, the sun will again slowly start rising earlier and earlier and earlier. And as much as I love winter and I love the weather, hey, snow coming on, still, I do also love the sunrise. I love seeing that sun and feeling that sun on me, so I'm looking forward to that sun rising earlier and earlier and earlier. Well, it's uh, coming up real close to uh, the part of the program where I play a conversation that I enjoyed with a scientist who's doing some really, you know, uh, cutting-edge work. If you ever got whacked in the back of the head and you saw stars, you've discovered the part of the brain that takes signals from our eyes and turns them into pictures. Our brains have other regions for hearing, for tasting, for smelling. And somehow, our brain puts all those pictures and sounds, tastes and smells, along with thoughts and emotions, Our brain puts them all together and turns them into memories. Just how our brains do that, how our brains make memories, is pretty darn mysterious. So I got in touch recently with a neuroscientist who is exploring that mystery by watching mouse brains, watching which neurons, which brain cells turn on, which neurons turn off when the mouse makes a memory.
1: My name is Mark Enderman. I'm a professor in the Division of Endocrinology at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. If I asked you to tell me about a recent experience you had, you probably are thinking about all the colors and all the shapes and everything in the image in your mind. That's going to take a lot of neurons.
0: Problem. Whether they're turned on or turned off, all neurons in that part of the brain look alike. How do you tell which ones are turned on? which ones are turned off.
1: We use a trick, this green fluorescent protein, to make the neurons sparkle the more they get active. There are these really powerful microscopes. When you point one of these microscopes at the top of a mouse's brain, and then you just watch these sort of twinkling cells that are flashing each time the cell gets active. And now the technology has gotten up that we can watch 7,000 at a time. Part of the problem
0: of watching what happens when the brain makes a memory is knowing when to look. It would seem to make sense to watch when the brain is actively absorbing sensory information, when we're actually seeing and smelling, tasting and hearing.
1: We've been focusing for several decades on how the brain pays attention to sensory information, but 99% of brain activity had nothing to do with that and was more likely to be about what the brain's doing when we're not paying attention to the world.
0: In other words, of, of the work the brain does is when we're not consciously thinking about something.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Moments where you're sort of sitting and hopefully not looking at your cell phone, and in those moments you're often thinking about what happened during the day or what happened in the last few minutes of experience. We think that that act of processing and chewing over what just happened might actually have some interesting effects on learning.
0: And so, in their search for the memorization process... Anderman and his team are watching the mouse brains when they are not looking at anything in particular.
1: Essentially shifting gears in our experiments and just focusing on what's happening in the mouse's brain when it's not looking at anything.
0: If not paying attention turns out to be a big part of the memory process, when could we possibly be paying less attention to the outside world than when we're asleep? I'm a big fan of sleep.
1: There's been a lot more work done on how taking a nap might be important for studying for a test.
0: What they asked the mice to remember were checkboard patterns on a screen. Looking at a certain image would make a signature pattern of neurons light up.
1: There's a lot of these sort of signatures going on in the brain that indicate that the brain's in a state where it's really just processing previous experiences And those same signatures seem to be happening in moments when an animal or a human is quiet but not asleep. They're chilling out. They're in a restful, quiet state. You can see some of the same signatures that happen during sleep, and and so it may just be like a different opportunity to kind of process and go over recent important things that happened to you. The images are presented for just two seconds. And the key thing that we did in this study that many studies hadn't done is we just... Gave the mouse like a full minute in between presentations.
0: What do you call the one minute in between the two stimuli?
1: During that minute, it falls into what we call a state of quiet waking. Quiet waking is when the mouse is like awake but really chilled out.
0: Is that what one would call daydreaming?
1: In a quiet waking state, that's where basically daydreaming can happen.
0: I asked because it looks like daydreaming is pretty important to making memories.
1: We were careful to use the word daydreaming because obviously, you know, it's never easy to compare what you see in the mouse to what is happening in a human where you can ask them, did you just have a daydream? But there's a lot of indirect evidence that kind of made us comfortable using that word. The main indirect evidence is that there's these moments where the patterns of activity look exactly like the patterns of activity that were happening when the mouse saw the actual stimulus a minute ago.
0: In other words, the pattern of neurons, lit up in the mouse brain, the signature pattern attached to the image they were looking at. That signature pattern showed up again when the mice were not paying attention to the screen.
1: During those moments, we also found that the cortex suddenly talks to this memory part of the brain called the hippocampus. And that sudden dialogue during that one moment where you see these patterns of activity the outside of the brain where all the sensory visual processing is happening, suddenly starts to talk with the hippocampus. So all of that is consistent with the idea that the mouse may be remembering. These daydreams really seem to depend on the same neurons being active when the mouse actually saw the stimulus. And that was a really cool finding because it suggested that there's something going on in these neurons that is actually changing over time. So we think we've kind of found the right spot. And we think we found the right moments in time, and now it's sort of up to some courageous people to go in and try to prove that this is where the action's happening.
0: How important is daydreaming to strengthening those connections, to bring back the pattern that is the memory?
1: Basically, when we submitted this paper, we sent it to to the, the journal, and then the reviewer's make a bunch of suggestions for things that can make the paper better or that'll make the paper more trustworthy. Most of the things they needed in terms of trustworthiness, we were able to do, do everything that needed to be done so that they could really trust the claims we were making about these things being correlated. But then they asked us, well, why don't you take these exact moments, identify them in real time, and somehow scramble them and leave the rest of the time that the brain's doing other stuff intact and if you could just sort of delete the daydream moments, maybe the learning will go away. What this requires is essentially being able to kind of decode what the brain is thinking about so fast in real time and then perturbing the brain. And then maybe the learning will go away. So we tried to do this for a long time. And essentially, the technology isn't quite there yet, but it's basically going to be there in the next couple of years to do this. It's not there quite yet.
0: Then again, perhaps the experiment is already being done on humans. Can we, can you um, extend this and give us perhaps implications for kids spending a lot of time on phones? In other words, time that they might normally spend daydreaming because they'd be bored, yep. but yep. not.
1: Yep. I, I think that it's, um, it's exactly right that, that if, you, if you're constantly, you know, actively engaged on, uh, on your phone, on social media you're not going to have as much of your waking life to really make sense of or to potentially, you know, better remember all of the experiences that you had. However, um, we're not claiming that that the only chance to, like, let's say, lay down the memories is during these quiet waking states. If somebody is on their phone all the time, but they still go to bed and have, you know, a good night's sleep, my guess is that a lot of, at least much of, the, much of the learning that needs to happen when you're offline can still happen. Um, I think the, the problem is the conjunction of not having any quiet, introspective moments when you're awake and then also being sleep-deprived. Um, that's a bad combination.
0: No doubt. Well, at least I have no doubt. Um, <laughs> Mark, this has really been fun. Thank you very much.
1: It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
0: I've been speaking with Dr. Mark Anderman of Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. For KVMR, I'm Al Stoller. And I want to thank you for listening. This has been Soundings on KVMR-FM Nevada City coming up in just a few moments. It's the Climate Report. And uh, coming up next week at this time, it is Zentech. Talk to you again real soon. Take care of yourselves. Take care of each other.